If you, O Lord, should mark our sins, then who, O Lord, could stand? None of us. Not a single one of us could stand. But pardon can be found with you that you may fear command. What a good promise and hope that we have from this psalm this morning, that pardon can be found with the Lord. That's the hope that we have, that pardon can be found with the Lord. Well, now is the time in our service when we turn to the preaching of God's Word. We are going to continue our study in the letter of Philemon. If you would turn with me there to, in your New Testament, to the letter of Philemon, and we will continue our study of this book together. Before we begin, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us as we study His Word. Sorry, Philippians. I apologize. (laughs) Father in heaven, Lord, we gather before you this morning because you are the Lord who instructs us in the way that we should go. Lord, our hearts are prone to err. Our hearts are prone to wander from you. But Lord, you are our shepherd and you guide us by your word. So Father, we ask that you would shepherd us now in this time to teach us and instruct us in the way that we should go. Lord, help us by your Holy Spirit to trust you, to receive your words with faith, knowing that your word is good for us. Lord, strengthen us by your word in this time that we would trust you, Lord, that we would obey you as a result of what you have for us this morning. And Lord, that you would give us courage to live our lives in this world. We need your strength from the Holy Spirit, and we ask this all in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Our text this morning comes from Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Pay careful attention as I read from the word of the Lord. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened by, any, by anything, frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. This ends the reading of the word of the Lord. May he bless it to us this morning. This letter of Philippians, we're continuing this morning, is continuing this idea that Paul has laid forth before that Christ is going to be glorified. This is the chief goal that we saw last week of the Apostle Paul, that whether he lives or whether he dies, Jesus Christ is going to be glorified through him. And now Paul is turning to the Philippians, and God, through this letter, is turning to us to say that we are also going to glorify Christ, but that we should glorify Christ in our lives. God is calling us, through this letter, to let our lives be lived in a manner worthy of, a go- of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, as we saw last week, that Jesus Christ is certainly going to be glorified. The question for us is, how should we live? How should we live in this world? 
Well, the main point for us this morning that Paul has is that living living worthy of the gospel while suffering for it. Living worthy of the gospel while suffering for it. And I'd like to look at this in three different ways this morning. First is the call to live worthy of the gospel. Secondly, that there is a mark of salvation, a sign of salvation. And thirdly, the gift of suffering for the gospel. Living worthy of the gospel, the mark of salvation, and the gift of suffering for the gospel. The first thing Paul tells us this morning is that we are to live worthy of the gospel. And this word that we have here, let your manner of life, these two words that in Greek are translated, live your life worthy, have behind them the concept of citizenry, of what it means to be a citizen of a kingdom. It can mean to lead your life, a word that was frequently used in reference to fulfilling one's civic duties. And Paul has in mind that we are those whose citizenship is in heaven. That yes, we may have an earthly citizenship between in the kingdoms here of this world, in the countries that we belong to, but Paul wants us to understand first and foremost that our kingdom is in heaven. Our citizenship belongs in heaven. And we are to conduct ourselves as those who belong to that kingdom. And in that kingdom, Christ is where he will be glorified, where he is glorified. But we live on this earth. We, in one sense, live outside of that kingdom. We are sojourners. We are strangers on this earth. We are exiles. Many of the terms that Scripture uses to describe our life on this earth. And that this time on earth is an evil age. We live in an earth that is fraught with evil. You look around and you say, this certainly does not look like the kingdom of God is present upon this earth. So how should we live our lives in this evil age in light of that? That we are citizens of this kingdom. Well, first of all, Paul tells us that we are to live our lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. As citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we are those who have been entrusted with the message from heaven, that we have a heavenly message to this world, and that we are those who are declaring this message, and we ought to live a life worthy of that message that we declare. And Paul is going to point out that we are, ought to conduct ourselves worthy of that message. This is a phrase that Paul likes to use a lot. In Ephesians 4, he says to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. In Colossians 1, he says to walk in a manner worthy of your Lord. In 1 Thessalonians, he says to walk in a manner worthy of God. But here he tells us to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. That is the chief way that we ought to think about our lives, or one of the chief ways we ought to think about our lives in this world, is that we are those who are entrusted with this gospel message, and that we ought to live in a way throughout our lives that honors this message that we've been given. So why does he say to do this? Well, Paul is himself a messenger who is imprisoned for the gospel, and it's a message for which he himself has been imprisoned. 
And the Philippians also are now being attacked for declaring and supporting this message, this gospel. And the the message itself cannot be compromised by our own unworthiness. Paul is telling us, live worthy of the gospel. We cannot compromise the gospel itself by our own unworthiness. Paul points this out in the earlier part of chapter 1. He says that there are those who are preaching the gospel with evil motives, yet he rejoices that they still proclaim the gospel. But he does not want us to be like those who proclaim the gospel, yet live our lives in a way that is unworthy of this gospel. Living our wives unworthy is an injustice to the message that we proclaim. And it opens us up, as we will see, to the attacks of the enemy to giving way to them. So what does living worthy of the gospel look like, at least in this section of Scripture? Well, Paul tells us, he says that I pray that you would live your, man, your life worthy of the gospel, that I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponent, opponents. So it's standing and contending, striving together for the gospel. The first thing he tells us is to stand. This ultimately means to hold your ground. How do you live worthy of the gospel of Christ? You stand and you hold your ground. You don't waver on the truth of the gospel. You don't waver on its doctrine. You don't minimize the doctrine of the gospel, the truth that Jesus Christ is the only Savior from sin. See, the world will seek to have us confess that this gospel is not true, or confess that it is just one thing among many in this world that we can believe, and it's all good before the court of this world. Not only that, the world will want to make us keep quiet about the gospel. They will want you to not speak out. This is not a message that they want to hear. And it means to stand firm in the face of those attempts by the world to not give way, to not shrink back and to fall apart. But secondly, Paul tells us that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving. And this word here is the word that we get our our word, athlete. This is a word that means to strive in a competition. Sometimes it can be used of battle and war where they would strive against an enemy. And sometimes it can be used in an athletic competition where you are striving against your competitor to win. Paul has this imagery in mind in 1 Timothy when he speaks of striving as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. But Paul does something interesting with this word. He makes up his own word. And Paul does this a lot. He likes to make up words that don't exist. As he attaches a preposition. And he says, striving together. And the imagery here is one of not striving against one another. Striving together. And the picture here is simply of a team working together. Not striving against each other, but striving with each other. And I'm sure you've all seen a football game or a sports game where teammates start fighting against each other. 
If you know football and the offensive line that is supposed to protect the most important player on the field, the quarterback who sends the ball all over the field, if that offensive line, those gentlemen standing there working together to protect this man, if they start pushing and shoving each other, what is going to happen? Well, their quarterback is going to get obliterated. And there will be penalty flags, obviously, like they do in football. But if that offensive line begins fighting against each other, then they're defenseless. They have no more protection. And Paul is saying, do not fight against each other. Strive together, work together as you work to support the gospel, as you proclaim it. But in this, he also has a third thing for us. Yes, we, we stand together, we strive together, but it is together, in one mind, in one spirit, in spirit and soul, as those words are literally translated. And this is that we must do this together. This is something that requires the whole church together. Because if we are dis, disunited, if we are not united together in standing for the gospel, this is when we open ourselves up to attack from the outside. For our church to be fractured because the enemy sees weakness in us. And we see weakness in ourselves. So it's standing and striving together. That's one of the ways that we do this. Then Paul says another thing here. He doesn't only say that. He says, and in verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. See, standing for the gospel and working together as the church, there will be people who will try to scare you. Or as this word could mean as well, intimidate you. They will try to get you to not confess your faith. Now this could be something very simple. They will look at you weird. Now often we think, really, is that? Yes, we don't like to be looked at as weird. We don't want to be looked at as those who are strange, who believe something strange. You know how it is. When they find out you're a Christian and people will say, oh, that's neat, and they immediately want to change the conversation. Or they're like, oh, good to meet you, and they start walking away. And you know what that feels like. You know that feeling. They will avoid you. Or they might actually say things against you because they don't like what you represent or what you believe. They might say something like, what you believe is absurd. And that's a way to intimidate you. To say, don't let that come out in front of me. I don't want to know about your religion. I don't want to know about your faith. It's offensive. I think this is the chief mark today in our culture that Christianity is offensive to this world. Or in today's language, they might say something like, it's an abusive or oppressive religion that you believe. Believing in Jesus Christ as the only way to salvation, that's oppressive to all the other people out there. We don't want to be told those things. It's not enjoyable to hear those things said about us as Christians. And people say them because they don't want to have to deal with what you represent and what you believe. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, 
For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, we're a fragrance of death to death. To the other, a fragrance of life to life. As we live our lives as believers in this world, living in a manner worthy, standing for the gospel, that we are an aroma of death to this world. Now, it doesn't mean that we're dead, but we are showing in them the death that is in themselves. And people do not like to know that they are dead. We didn't like to hear that message. We don't like to know that there is sin in us when it gets exposed. It feels like death. And people will fight against that. They will try to suppress it, to push it away. And Paul is here telling the Christians to not be afraid. Don't be intimidated by them. This is how you stand worthy of the gospel, is don't be afraid of them. Don't be afraid of their criticisms of you. Don't be afraid of when they turn away from you, when they ignore you, or when they do even worse things to you, like what Paul himself is experiencing in prison for the sake of the gospel. See, ultimately, it's suffering for the gospel. Paul is assuming that as we live our lives, their suffering will come for the sake of the gospel. Now, that does not mean that we will always suffer. Thankfully, we have lived in a, in a country where we don't suffer greatly like they do in other parts of this world for the, for the gospel. I was just reading this week about the church in Nigeria. For decades, Christians have been killed and slaughtered in churches and out of churches because they are Christians for the sake of the gospel. That is not something that we currently face in our country, and we thank the Lord that he has been kind to us. But we don't know what the future holds. But it is suffering, suffering for the sake of the gospel that we endure in this life. So how should we think about this suffering that we are going to face? Well, that's the subject of our next two points this morning. That suffering is suffering for the gospel is a mark of salvation. It's our second point. Steadfastness for the gospel is a sign of our salvation. Now Paul says this, not frightened by any things in your in your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Now, there's a difficulty here. Different translations will will translate this beginning phrase here a little bit differently, and it has to do with that word there in this verse. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. That word there is not actually in the Greek. It just says this, literally, for it This is a clear sign to them of destruction. Now, what is this sign of destruction? Is it a sign, our standing firm in the gospel, is this a sign to them of their destruction or of our destruction? The NASB is a little bit ambiguous in how they translate this. It says, which is a sign of destruction for them. The logic here is that our standing, our contending, and our not being frightened to our opponents is a sign of our sure destruction. 
Think of Christians. We are not those who are taking up arms to try and fight the armies of this world to spread the gospel, are we? We are weak to the world. This is why the church gets persecuted, because we don't fight back with the weapons of this world. And the world thinks, you're weak. You're going to stand in the face of us who has the power of even the governments at times behind them, or people who take up the swords like they do in these foreign countries around the world right now. You think you can stand up against us? You're standing up for this message? And you're just going to let this happen to you? This is an obvious sign of your destruction. That what to the world looks like foolishness, God says, no. This is actually a sign of your salvation. This is shown to be evidence that we indeed will be saved. That being persecuted for our faith is not the end for the Christian. Instead, when others persecute us for our faith, it is evidence given to us by God that we indeed are saved and will be saved. God is stamping us through persecution saying, I am the God who saves you. Our Savior Jesus Himself suffered and died. He endured death to the point of death on a cross, as chapter 2 tells us. And for this reason, God highly exalted Him. Now, our steadfastness to the faith is not salvation itself. We do not save ourselves. We're saved by Christ alone who suffered and died for us but because we have been saved, we suffer for His sake. And Paul tells us that this is a sign from God that you are those who are marked for salvation. And he says, this is from God. Even our steadfastness in the midst of trial comes from God. Our ability to endure and stand up under the persecutions, the mockings, The strange looks of those around us that look at us as Christians, our ability to endure is from God. It's not from ourselves. Paul says in another book, but by the grace of God I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Paul is just reiterating his point in Philippians 1, that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Endurance under suffering for the gospel is a sign to you that you belong to God. And that is the mark of salvation that Paul tells us in this passage. But then Paul has an interesting turn, which is our third point this morning. The gift of suffering for the gospel. Paul says, For it has been granted to you for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. He says, It has been granted to you, graciously given, that you should believe in him, 
Now that is going to be the subject of another sermon next week. About what does this mean that God gives faith to us? So I'll delay that until next week. But here he says that not only should you believe in him, but that you should suffer for his sake. This is a very interesting thing for Paul to say. It's a gracious gift of God that you should suffer for the gospel. It's a gift from him. What kind of gift is that? What kind of gift is suffering for the gospel? It's probably the most difficult truth in our Christian religion. That we suffer for the gospel. Imagine trying to win people over to Christianity saying, you're going to become a Christian and first thing you need to know is you're going to suffer. Is that how you win friends and influence people into Christianity? Guess what God is going to give you? Salvation and suffering for his name. I had to reflect a long time on this this week. And the point here is that God attaches blessing to his people when they suffer for him. Now persecution itself, when the insults, the put-downs, when we're sidelined, when our livelihoods are jeopardized because we stand for our faith, our, these are really sufferings. They're hard. They're painful. This is not meant to minimize the pain and trial that we would go through. Paul is not saying, yay, sufferings, all right, these are good things that we just love them, enjoy them. No, we don't enjoy them. But we understand what they are for. What God intends with them. That he attaches blessing to them. That God has given them to us for our good. They're a gift to us that he is using for our good. He knows how truly weak we are, and He knows the way that we will grow as Christians. And it does not come through showering our lives with all the material blessings of this world and the praises of men. God knows what that will do to us. The way that God knows to grow us as Christians is to give us sufferings. To look away from this world, to look away from the things in this life that we would trust in and we would place our hope in and to look to God alone. He knows that the more our faith is tested and tried, the more that faith grows. And we see this throughout the world, that as the church is persecuted throughout the world, that as the church is attacked and put down, what do we see that happens? It grows. The famous phrase, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. This is how God grows His church and grows us as believers. And it's a gift from Him. It is a painful, hard gift, but it is a gift from Him. And this is precisely what Jesus tells us. The Beatitudes. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account? 
Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And what happened to the disciples when they were persecuted for their faith in the book of Acts? What did, what did they do? Did they start a political action committee trying to change the government to say, we shouldn't be persecuted? That may be a reasonable response at times. But what did they do? And when the Pharisees had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. They left the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They saw in that God was working in their lives to grow them, to say, I want to make you grow in your faith. And they said, we're rejoicing that God counted us worthy to grow our faith in this way. Now, they didn't certainly enjoy the beatings. I don't think they, they liked that at all. Nobody would. But they rejoiced. And this is what we have for us, is that, yes, we are to those who are to live our lives worthy of the gospel in this life, in the midst of suffering for it. That suffering may be small, and that suffering may be large. We don't know what the Lord has in store for us in this life. But God wants to give us the strength to say, continue and do this together as the body of Christ. And ultimately, that we will see in chapter 2, that we have a Savior who has done this for us before. That He is the one who was ultimately persecuted and suffered and died. So that He could help us as those who would walk in His path behind Him. But we have hope because in the midst of all of those sufferings, in the midst of all of those persecutions, we know that we will be like our Savior as those who are raised through those trials. Those trials are not the end for us because Jesus overcame them. He conquered them. He overcame all of the persecutions of this world and He endured through them. And so He is now our Savior from them all. So we can have hope as we face all the trials whatever they may be in this world, the odd looks, the comments, the sneers, even the removal of good things from our lives. And God forbid that even we should lose our lives for its sake. That even in that, Christ can use it for His glory. And so we have hope. We have wonderful hope because we have an amazing Savior for us from all of these things. So brothers and sisters, live a life worthy of this message that you have been entrusted with. Stand together. Let us not fight against each other over the gospel. 
Stand together. Don't be afraid. Rest and trust in your Savior who can carry you through all of these things. It is God who does this. It is God who works in you. Rest in Him and trust in Him. Let's pray.